Well, hello and welcome to Takeover Tuesday. I'm your host, Dermot Buffini. And as you know, once a month I take over the Brian Buffini Show, where I interview people who've been there and done that, and people who've achieved superior performance in different areas of life. And I want to know what makes the person as much as what makes the success. And today, I have a great story for you. You know, there are very few people on the planet today who are not engaged in social media in one way or another. And while there are many platforms, one of the greatest success stories is Instagram. Instagram has over 600 million monthly users. Yes, I'll say it again. Over 600 million monthly users. And my guest today is one of the main players in its development, Mr. Shane Sweeney. Shane, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dermot. Well, you know what? I want to get into the story of Instagram and um, the principles and what you guys learned and how it became just kind of the runaway success it's become. Because there's so much to learn from that story. But what I want to do is I want to start with you. And just kind of pre-Instagram and kind of a little bit of your background, where you grew up. Sure. And how you end up on Instagram. So where did you grow up? Where did Shane Sweeney start his life? I grew up in the, the foothills of Northern California, a town called Paradise near Chico. So kind of foothills in the valley. No, well. Grew up in a, a nice house. Uh, let's see, I had two sisters, one on each side. Hmm. So I was the middle child. I always had a knack for computers that kind of started really young. Probably because my grandfather was a math teacher, hmm. and he was really, you know, pushing computers on us. And I remember as a kid getting those things and uh, kind of poking at them, not necessarily playing games, but trying to build little things on them. And I think that's kind of obviously the seed that led me down the path that I went down. But so back how, then it was how old were you when you got your first computer? Must have been about five <laughs> or five. Back then, the computers we had weren't anything like today. Like, yeah, the old Commodore 64s yeah, or... There's no color or anything like that. It was monochrome and, and just text, but, you know... So, it, Mom and Dad, what did they do? They're entrepreneurs themselves. Ah. They have some businesses, primarily on the insurance brokerage side, but they've kind of built themselves up a business there. So, Granddad was kind of like the analytical uh, math guy, and mm-hmm. Mom and Dad were the entrepreneurs, so there's kind of the hybrid right there. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah. What about sports growing up? Were you a sports kid? Oh, I'm terrible at sports. <laughs> you see, we didn't discover that I couldn't see well out of my left eye uh, until I was probably nine. Mm. And so the depth perception, that's it. I mean, that's something I've only heard of. <laughs> and most sports involve things flying, shooting things. Mm-hmm. Anti-coordination, stuff like that. Yeah. So golf is probably the only sport that... Yeah. I've kind of stuck with throughout the years, and I, I'm still a hack at it, but at least the ball stays where I, it is until I hit it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can feel your pain there. So at five years of age, you got your first computer. What was it like growing up in high school? What sort of a kid were you? Well, I got into music probably junior high, got a guitar, and I kind of played around with the keyboard. And so from junior high to high school, music was a big part of it, too. So that was kind of my social hobby. We'd play some music with some friends. Uh, later, I'd play in, in youth groups around town. But on the computer side, you know, that was always something that I kind of focused on more on my lonesome or like within a, a small circle of friends. But unfortunately, you know, like the tinkering and experimenting uh, went down a path where I got a little too curious curious with the systems. And uh, it was in, in both junior and high, in high school, I started to brush up against the authority of the school, the principals. And I was... Um, tinkering with the systems, maybe playing a few pranks on teachers or uh, on some students. So this uh, gift that you had was kind of, uh, as you say, going on the wrong path. Yeah. And getting you in the wrong places. Eventually, it led to me 
you know, having to leave the high school. I got expelled. Mm. And there was this moment that I was like, okay, like, I obviously have this knack for computers, but up until now, Mm. you know, I've just been having fun with it and Mm. not really using it in a productive manner, but I needed to get a job. How old were you when that happened? 17. Okay. Yeah. And at that point, that's obviously a big life lesson. Yeah. You're out of high school. Did you graduate? I didn't. Didn't? No. Instead, I uh, tried to apply for jobs. And that was one of the questions. It was just like, oh, why aren't you in school? Why aren't you in school? Hmm. And I kept, uh, you know, passing it off as like, oh, you know, making up something. I don't remember specifically. And I just got frustrated. And finally, at the end, I had a job interview and I went in. I just told them everything. I said, you know what? I got in trouble for hacking Hmm. and they kicked me out of school. And this is why I'm looking for a job. And I got that job. What was that? It was a tech support job (laughs) for a dial-up internet service provider. Wow. So I would answer the phone. I'd help people with their username and password, restart their computer. And then while I wasn't on the phone, I was uh, starting to use some of those skills to develop websites at the time. So I was programming. Yeah, and that's kind of the first job. Did you feel like you had to grow up a little faster than your peers? Yeah, I didn't mind that. It hasn't been until recently that I kind of look back and say, like, oh, you know, I, I missed out on this, you know, late high school, college years. Mm-hmm. I like putting my head down. It really became a huge passion of mine to like build these things with, you know, build programs or websites on the computer, however it started. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was, I was happy with it. You know, I, if anything, I'd look at that other people are wasting their time. Right. <laughs> and I would be, I'd be home like with my head down, cranking away. We always worker. No, I mean, I was terrible at procrastinating. I never did my homework. Hmm. Never did that. I would listen in class, you know. Hmm. What, what I wasn't good at was the multitasking. Like, I remember, you know, you had to take notes in class, and it built up this binder, and that would be 60% of your grade. Hmm. I was terrible at that. I felt like I couldn't absorb the information mm-hmm. if I was taking the notes. And so um, I would end up failing these classes, but I would ace the tests. Because mm. I heard everyone. <laughs> I heard what they were saying. I just, uh, it didn't work for me. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So after the tech support, and then you were, what did you say, building websites? and Yeah, I was building websites. I did that for almost two years, and it wasn't a great job. It mm. was a great first job. And I had the opportunity to move on to, it was like a mid-level startup. It was a venture-backed company that was surprisingly local in the small Chico town north of Sacramento. And they were doing this wireless networking. So it was also an internet provider, mm-hmm. but kind of newer. And it just was like a hot company in town. Mm-hmm. And they took me on. And that was a great job for the three months until <laughs> the funding was pulled and I was put back out on the street. But that was my first taste of maybe like mm. what would later I would experience as like a... Entrepreneur. Yeah, a doing a startup. And kind of what that felt like and how different it was from maybe something that was more established. Now you're in Chico at this stage, which is not exactly Silicon Valley. No. <laughs> but there was things starting to happen up there. I mean, it's a different place now. Yeah. It's become quite a little uh, tech center of its yeah. own. From there, you went to, where'd you go after that? The biggest thing after that was something changed. I started working on my own ideas, not just building an app, or it wasn't even an app back then, like a website or a mm-hmm. product. It would be like, let's just like make a company around that. And so... I would go out and try to do these things and ultimately they would fail really quickly and I would need to go get a job. So there was various software companies that would probably claim to have had me working for them for a few months up in uh, you know that area of California. 
But it always would be like, go make some money to then be able to quit and work on something. Hmm. And eventually, after trying a bunch of silly ideas, I ended up at one of the bigger companies in that area now, which is Mm build.com. Which is a huge success story. Yeah. And I think that's probably, that's where I met my first real mentor professionally Mm -hmm. was the CEO of that company. Hmm. And how did that change? Because at this stage, you really didn't, life was your mentor. Yeah, it was just... Your granddad was your mentor before that. Yeah. And you know what? I had the opportunity to let him know how much he meant to me, my grandfather, Hmm. Recently, back then, I probably, you mm-hmm. know, I was still, I still mm-hmm. am I'm young and like, mm-hmm. I was narrow-minded, but um, I've had some time to reflect. That's cool. But yeah, at Build, I was there for a while, just engineer, you know, it, it paid well for the area. And then I remember one day, the CEO sent out an email to the rest of the company saying, hey, I have this open door policy. We're trying to extend the business in different ways. And if you have any idea, like my door's open, come on in. And, you know, I had been working on these ideas and I had one that I had written up and I decided to formalize it a little bit, print it out. And I walked into his office and he had no idea who I was. Mm. And I slapped it on his table and talked to him for about an hour about that idea. To which he just said, oh, you know, that's great. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> um, followed up with, you know, let's grab lunch tomorrow. I want to tell you about an idea that I have. Mm. And so began this relationship where I ended up moonlighting this other project is a company that we started called Credentify, a credential verification business. Mm. So real quick, you know, people lie on their resume. We wanted to make that as simple mm. as like mm-hmm. clicking a box in an applicant tracking system and we'd go out and do the footwork for verifying that they were telling the truth. Mm. So we built that and started as Moonlighting and then we allocated some money and like made it a real thing and uh, it lasted for a couple of years until another one. Yeah. I'm just curious about, because you said he was your mentor. How did that happen? Like, what did that look like? Up until then, I had met a few like-minded people, but they were kind of at the same stage that I was. Mm. And what Chris gave me was this perspective of, here's someone who's like already started a relatively large business, especially for the area. He was like young, energetic, and was somewhat technical. Like he's technical, but he kind of like left that for business. So we connected very quickly. We're very different people. But I learned a lot from him, not necessarily following everything that he said, but just being around him Mm. and experiencing the opportunities and conversations that he had placed me in and uh, the chance to, you know, build what I would say, like my first legitimate company was with him. So, so after that ceased to be, yeah, then where was it on to? So it was an interesting time. This was, uh, right around when the iPhone came out. And if you had an early iPhone, you probably remember there were no apps on it, Mm -hmm. which is kind of crazy to think. Right. This was uh, around the time that Apple released the information about how to build these applications, Mm. what they call the SDK or the development kit. So I was out of a job. We just shut down Credentify. How old are you at this stage? How old would I be? It's about 22, 23. Mm. It was a reboot for me in my life. I was a lot heavier and I wanted to lose the weight and I wanted to learn this new skill. (laughs) And I prodigal child moved back in with my parents Mm -hmm. and i remember just like studying reading the documentation building apps and just like kind of experimenting it was so new at this time and i made the decision that i wanted to move down to san francisco Um, and so i think it was about six months after that i finally made the move so we were near polk gulch my first apartment 
It's the cheapest apartment I could find. <laughs> Honestly, it was a good apartment, but it was a cave. You couldn't see the, the sky <laughs> from the apartment. It was like basement floor. And uh, I remember a couple of days I'd like walk out and it'd be like raining or drizzling or windy. And I couldn't tell because I couldn't, <laughs> I had no frame of reference. Yeah, right. I'd have to like reach my head Dungeon. out the window <laughs> just to see the sky. You know, I stayed there, cheap rent, and I rented a desk. A friend of mine that I knew from Chico had just moved down to the Bay Area and he told me about this co-working space, the idea where you can interact with other people. You have your own desk that's like assigned to you. And then there's all these people around you like-minded, building their own things. And they call them like incubators back then. And so this was at Dogpatch Labs, Pier 38, mm. adjacent to the Giants baseball stadium. Mm. And I got my desk there. I interviewed. I have no idea how I got in there. <laughs> this place turned out to be like a really hotbed. I had no idea how I got in there. I had it's an just interview a hotbed of entrepreneurs coming to yeah, work there, on their ideas. Yeah, there's been some good companies to come out of there, at least like in Silicon Valley. It's one of those things where if you go online... It was a good time. There's like this alumni group that they have where, you know, people keep in touch. But I had my little $500 desk there and uh, I went there and, you know, just kind of kept my head down. And at this point, I I was really familiar with building apps. I just, I hadn't latched onto anything. So I was really just kind of honing in those skills, I guess. What was your big idea then? What were you working on? I had built this thing for Craigslist called Craigsley. And I ended up having the opportunity to sell it. And that is kind of what paid my rent for the first little while that I was down there. I didn't sell it for a lot at all. It was more like, you know, here, we'll take it over and like provide some support. And like, yeah, now you can pay your rent. (laughs) And so that's kind of what I was working on. But really, I hadn't connected the two, which is like, here's this new skill I've been developing. I ended up working, uh, you know, met some people there. That's the whole idea. So I met a couple people there who got me some contracts to work on some iPhone apps, and I was still doing some web development on the back end. It's complementary skills. And it was probably, you know, six months to a year of being there, I decided to start this company called Coffee Table. I started this with Chris again Mm -hmm. from build.com. The iPad had just came out. And we were brainstorming different ideas of how we could build a company around that. And our idea was taking catalogs uh, that you'd purchase products from and put them on the iPad. Mm-hmm. So you can make yeah. that experience, you know, like, let's get rid of all this paper we're sending. Right. Let's make the experience of ordering from a catalog, like, really enjoyable. Yeah. And so I started working on that. But something interesting happened around that time is uh, I had a deskmate move in. We were in this open space, and the desk across me was free. And uh, in walks in one day, a guy have the name Kevin Sistrom. And Kevin was kind of new to the space, and he was working on a product, an idea called bourbon at the time. And of course, Kevin went on to found Instagram Mm -hmm. where I ended up, but this was kind of the beginning of that relationship. And Mm. it all started with him moving in across and us grabbing lunch that first day. You had your idea, the environment you're in, everybody's trying to, they're working on their project. Yeah. And you just invited him out to lunch. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of a nice thing to do. There's like, welcome to the neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. There's a few of us that were like good friends or like, you know, weird friends as we're in there. So Mm -hmm. we invited him along and Throughout the next you know, few weeks or months, I um, would chime in here and there with what he was working on and show him what I was working on. So we became acquaintances and friends yeah. kind of in that space. I remember you telling me you didn't think what he was working on was all that great at the time. It was, it was kind of like interesting, but it was kind of like, eh, we'll see how that goes on. Yeah, I think you know, the feedback I gave to him back then was just like, oh, you know, like, this really needs to be native. This idea that it shouldn't be a website that you look up on your phone. It should be an app. Okay. That's what native means. It's an app. 
yeah, it's an app, right? Gotcha. And that's, it feels a little faster. You can interact with things like the camera. So I kept like tinkering with little experiments and showing him those. Yeah, I think that's kind of probably what gave him the idea that, oh, this guy builds apps, obviously. So that was an interesting little bit there. It's a fun mm-hmm. relationship we had, just kind of playing off each other and giving each other feedback, like everyone around us is yeah. the same thing. So what point is it like, okay, out with the coffee table? Mm-hmm. When did it happen when you went from your idea to his idea? Yeah. So I ended up leaving that peer. The company who organized that workspace had opened up another office where you can get not just a desk, but like a private office. And so to work on coffee table, I kind of went over to that area and it was a different location. So that meant saying goodbye to Kevin and starting up kind of full steam on coffee table over there. So I remember the conversation, you know, when I left and, you know, Kevin saying, oh, like it would be great to have you come and work on bourbon. And I was like, yeah, so that was their idea before it became Instagram. It was called bourbon. Yeah, it was Kevin was working on Bourbon. It was like a location type application where you go and you share plans and you check into places. Uh, ultimately, what they'll identify is that the, you know, the photo aspect of that, which was really mm. popular, turned into Instagram. But at the time, I really respected Kevin. And it wasn't easy to just say like, oh, no, like uh, I need to go do this. But I had committed mm-hmm. uh, to a good friend and mentor yep. that I'd be working on this project. And it was a couple months later after Kevin had met Mike that I had kind of reached out to them again, not with the intention to jump ship, but really just to like ask if there's anything that I can help with. Mm -hmm. And that led quickly to me meeting Mike and having a conversation and joining Instagram as the first engineer. A difficult decision. And the Mike you're mentioning is Mike Krieger, who is, he's the other founder of Instagram. That's right. Yeah. And so those guys had gone to Stanford together. Yeah. They met at Stanford through like social groups. They weren't like close there from what I understand, but that network kind of led them back to one another. Yeah. So I had that emotional decision, which was really hard to leave Mm -hmm. coffee table, but I felt like I was being drawn to this, to work Mm -hmm. with these two guys that had great educations. I really respected. And even after meeting Mike for just an hour of talking to him, you couldn't help but really like the guy. Were you working in isolation and then you kind of had these synergy partners that you're developing a relationship with? Would you think that was the draw or was it the possibility you could see with what they were doing? Yeah, it might be as simple as this, where by working on Coffee Table, I was still connected to that chain of everything in my past. Mm. I was still connected to Chico mm. and to Chris and to mm. that, and I'd kind of been down that road. Mm. With Mike and Kevin, it's like, that's why I moved down here. I moved down to meet people that are like-minded, mm. that I really respect, that I can learn from. And I think that's what ate at me. And I was like, you know, yeah, even though I'd made these commitments to do this... I needed to have the tough conversation Mm -hmm. and leave. And I've never regretted that decision, Mm -hmm. even in the short term. Mm. And it was a very emotional, it's easy to say now that I didn't regret that, but I'm telling you like, it's scary. Yeah. You know, and that was still jumping into something like Instagram, which what was a risk. And Mm. you know, there was, and you weren't exactly high on cash at this stage. I mean, (laughs) you're eating ramen noodle and, you know? Yeah. You know, until I looked at the nutrition facts for ramen (laughs) noodle, that stuff's terrible. It'll kill you. Yeah, it wasn't living high. I mean, you can't pay yourself too much if you're in that position, right? Mm -hmm. If you raise money, you need to be motivated. Mm -hmm. You need to not be so distracted, I guess. And would I have liked more? Yeah, but I got it. You know, like you don't want to have too much. Mm -hmm. And so we had just enough to pay our bills and like, yeah, you know, you can go out, you know, once a month (laughs) here or there. To be honest, it's expensive living down there. If you Mm -hmm. looked at our salaries, you'd be like, oh, that's a pretty decent salary, but... We didn't have a lot of money left over mm-hmm. at the end of the month, but it meant that we were 
focused and working, and that's what we love to do. And your job was what? So I came in with that iOS experience. Mm-hmm. So going Building back the to apps. yeah, Credentify got put in the bucket. I learned this new skill, and like that's what brought me in mm-hmm. ultimately to Instagram. Mm-hmm. So during the day, working on the iOS app, later the Android app, and uh, at night working with Mike on what I could with the servers. I had some real-world experience there that I can lend from working at all those various companies. So I was the app guy. So skip forward a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, I came to visit you at the end of the story when Facebook had purchased Instagram. Yeah. And what fascinated me and one of the reasons I really wanted to get you on here was to talk about when I visited with you and we did the tour of Facebook and that was fantastic and amazing. But what really intrigued me and blew my mind was Instagram and the story of Instagram. And so those principles of your guy's mindset, your intentionality with the product, your commitment, you know, what your commitment was to, and I don't want to give too much away here, but just talk a little bit about some of the principles that you guys started with yeah, and how it worked for you guys and why it worked for you guys. Yeah. We had some core values that you kind of can only look back and extract them. And at a certain point, we went back and we extracted them. And mm. a couple of those were like, do the simple thing first. Mm. There were so many ideas, so many things that we can do with Instagram. Even in the time that it was, you could look at similar products and pick features from them. But what we wanted to focus on was like the timing of everything, what made sense for us right now in the moment, and how could we implement that in the simplest possible way. So how could we take a feature like comments and make the simplest version of it to start that's effective and works? and not distract ourselves with the potential of what it could become. Mm-hmm. Not get too far ahead of yourselves. We had confidence there. One of the other things we used to say is like, say, remain humble, but confident. Mm. And again, that was just like looking back. We kind of knew what we wanted, but you, you have to see these things play out. You want to see it somewhat validated mm-hmm. after a certain amount of time. Because that's where the confidence comes from too. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the app had very few features. It's like, let's focus on these pillars. You know, we want sharing to be really fast. You know, we want the app to be very stable. And you strive to achieve these goals like above everything else. And it sounds simple, but it's easiestly distilled down to just like out-execute. Out-execute yourself. When you're going to do something, like do it better than you thought you can do. That was kind of at the very beginning of it for us was... Yeah. Well, do the simple thing is sometimes it's very hard to find the simple thing when you've got so much going on. Secondarily is you're in the idea fest of Silicon Valley yeah. where, you know, down San Francisco, you're in this environment where everybody's got a, an idea every five seconds. Yeah. What I loved about what you guys said, and, and I think it translates into a lot of our customers' businesses, but what I heard you guys say was that you were maniacal on your focus on the customer. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, if you're building a social product, like you're not going to be successful without your customer. And that applies Candy to business. so many businesses, right? So... If we look at the original team here, we had like, Mike and I were focused on the technical side. Kevin, also technical, but very much drove the business side and the needs that we had there. So So raising money and kind of getting the word out about Instagram. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, press partnership, stuff like that. So Josh, someone we haven't mentioned yet, a quarter of this team was dedicated to just being a pulse on the consumer and You know, we would work through him and keep our pulse as much as we could on the product to understand what the community's needs were and what their wants were and where they were going and balancing that with how we felt and where we wanted our product to go. 
the easy thing to reach for here is like the Henry Ford. Uh, you know, people wanted a faster horse. If I asked them, they would have wanted yeah. a faster horse. Right. So you need to balance that and you need to have the confidence in like where we're going, but you need to maintain that pulse. Mm-hmm. And I remember too, just like obsessing about how we wanted people to feel about Instagram. Mm-hmm when you use the product, we want them to feel like this sense of joy and magic because Mm -hmm. we can engineer things in a certain way to hide some of the pain or the slowness. Mm -hmm. We wanted the app to feel snappy and fast and it was stable. It wasn't crashing on them because that's just like makes you frustrated. You know, (laughs) people aren't going to blame their phone. Even if it was their phone, they're going to blame the app. Yeah. So it was things like that where you, you take as much responsibility as you should, which is really like all of it and say, you know, like from end to end, Mm -hmm. how can we control this experience? Mm -hmm. And anything that we put out, we wanted to make sure that like was super polished. But, you know, we, we had to balance that. You can't wait forever. So, mm-hmm. you know, we would commit to shipping something every month. Your customer was me, who is somebody who's not very tech savvy, mm-hmm. but loves technology. And I love the technology that I, I can use. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it's built. I don't really care how it's built. Yeah. How long was it before you launched? I thought it was like six or seven months. You, you guys were just, or maybe a year, was it? So Bourbon was around for quite a while. So that was the product before. Yeah. But from the time like Mike came on, they kind of realized we need to take this idea and and come up with something else. We need to pivot is the keyword there. They built the first version of Instagram in eight weeks. What came out in eight weeks compared to what you see now is something super basic. You know, Mm -hmm. we're talking about, I think, having seven filters and really basic functionality. The product looked a lot different than... From what I heard you guys say was that you had a goal for the product and you had a non-goal. Mm-hmm. And then also, is it true you focused on 100 people that you knew when they could actually utilize the product to a certain level that you were excited about, then you'd kind of yeah. let the product fly. So one of the brilliant things that Kevin did early on was organize this group of about 100 people in the Bay Area that would have this affinity towards something like Instagram where you can take a photo make it look impressive with filters and Mm -hmm. create a community around that. And those original like hundred or so testers, if you want to call it, were like hugely influential, not only to us, but like the community as well. So the idea that for our product, if you were to get it on day one and it was a blank slate, it wouldn't communicate the message of creativity, of sharing, of global that we wanted on Instagram this window to a world, have you? So having that hundred people create that content, give feedback, mm-hmm. and us be able to watch that allows you to then shape that product gotcha. early on. And as it grows, that becomes less relevant. But it's incredibly important in the beginning because it helps you test, you know, what were my assumptions? How is mm. this being received with what we assumed was like a really target market for our product? And then work with them personally to get that feedback. Hmm. Which helped you develop the product mm-hmm. so that it was easier to use. Because I remember you saying you didn't have all the filters and there was other oh, yeah. there was other platforms out there. But once you got that 100 focused and you really leveraged their feedback and it evolved the product, how soon was it before? Because I know there was a pretty impressive timeline from the time you yeah. kind of got 100 people down. Then you kind of opened the doors and that horse started running. Yeah, so day one, the figures are out there. I think it was 25,000 people within the first day. If we zoom out, you know, from that first hundred throughout the first year, you know, we were getting to the point where it was like a, a million a month. Oh. By the time we got to releasing Android, which was 
the app on kind of like the split brain of phones. You either have an iPhone or yep. you have an Android. Yep. We released that in 2012 and we had 1 million people sign up in 12 hours. So things grew really quickly. Mm-hmm. And so you can assume that that first hundred and that seed, we had to internalize a lot of that because it was growing so fast. And you had to use that as maybe a guiding light or in the back of your head for like, where we want to take this. But even more important to point to what Josh's role, which was, you know, while we were busy with either the business or building this thing, making sure that we had someone focused on the community and mm-hmm. having their pulse on there. So you never lost that. You know what? They did an incredible job. Uh, even today, keeping in touch with, you know, the most influential users mm-hmm. all the way down to like just having focus groups of the average user to make sure that we're still hitting those same goals, that people feel that it's simple, that they feel like it's fast, that they're able to share what they want to share. Mm-hmm. They feel like the filters and they can be as creative as they want to be on there. Mm-hmm. Even if you were one person, that the idea here is like carving out and a team of four, we were about four for a year, mm-hmm. a quarter of our resources there was someone dedicated to the community, mm-hmm. not building something, but just listening. It's fantastic. And so if you spend a quarter of your time just listening, right. <laughs> I really think that was uh, the most important thing we did was just having that really good pulse on the community early mm-hmm. on. Because uh, after a while, like there's just so many that like you couldn't possibly keep up with every single one, obviously. Right. And you need to have that confidence in what direction you're taking it. What you've learned could apply to any business. Mm-hmm. People you've learned from. Chris was a leader. Mm-hmm. Sounds like Kevin was a leader. Yeah. What did you learn from Kevin? I learned from Kevin that understanding what you do is probably the most important quality or characteristic you should have. And what I mean by that is understand what direction you're taking, understand what action you're taking. Hmm. Applying it to a technical sense, like I might need to do something with the Instagram app and it's really easy to like pull off solutions off the shelf and say like, oh, let me just like pull these things and glue them together and like, there you go. Hmm. Now you have that feature. But if I go deeper and I truly understand what I'm doing, I'll be better for it and the product will be better for it. And I try to apply that now in everything. My wife and I have taken up cooking and she'll be the first to tell you that I obsess about understanding <laughs> why we do something a particular way or like, you know, why the temperature needs to be here, the knife cut needs to be at this bias. <laughs> and it might be a curse, but I actually feel like I really appreciate that. I feel like, you know, not going through a formal sense of education, it's therapeutic for me to like go through and really try to dive in and understand everything that we do. Mm. And I really appreciate that from both Kevin and Mike uh, and Instagram is just holding me accountable to saying like, okay, if this is what you're doing, like explain it to me. Mm. And if you don't know what you're doing, you can't explain it. That's right. So you really have to to understand what you're doing. So you know what you're trying to accomplish. You know the activities and you know the desired result. Mm -hmm. So how many users did you guys have before you were purchased by Facebook? So we had 50 million users when Facebook acquired us. We entered the Facebook acquisition right after Android and Facebook was not only much larger in terms of their reach, mm-hmm. but in terms of resources. We were a team of 13 people. <laughs> right. I think that's the point of getting to is the fact that you guys were able to scale the number of people to 50 million, but you didn't have a thousand people to get there. No. How were you able to keep it to such few amount of people, but scale the business to having so many customers? Honestly, I think that's a good question. I can tell you what we did and how it worked out. So to be honest, like we worked at 
on one thing at a time. Mm. We didn't have the resources or the luxuries to try to work on multiple things. Mm. I mean, we could have, right? You could say, well, why not work it on three things at once? We worked on one thing because it was something that we could see from beginning to end and ensure the same level of like quality and attention and stability, all those values. We wanted it to be fast and stable. If we just did one thing, we knew that we can execute really well on that. The key is making sure we do the right thing. And I think we we had really great direction and we got really lucky at the same time hmm. in doing the right thing. But it came down to building services that, all right, I used to say this thing where it was like, you're at point A and you know where point B is. Mm-hmm. Too many people try to jump from point A directly to point B. Mm. In order to make Instagram successful, it, it essentially meant this thing need to work, right? You can mm-hmm. keep adding new and new things, but if it's not working, it doesn't matter how many features you have. Right. You know, we would look at on a Friday and say like, what do we need to do to the servers to get to the next weekend? Or to get through this weekend. Mm. So it wasn't like, how do we invest in the infrastructure to scale to 500 million <laughs> users? We knew that eventually, yeah, we'd love to get there. But we can't start that today. There's too many questions. One of my favorite quotes is, you don't know what you don't know. Mm. And so based on what you know, like, what can we do to get through this weekend? And we'd inch closer from A to B. You know, the potentially infinite number of steps to get there. And so you're limiting your exposure. You're saying, I'm going to do what's necessary to get me through this critical moment. Weekends were really popular with Instagram. That's why I bring that up. Mm. We would work on one feature in the app at a time, and we'd make sure it was really focused and polished and put that out there. Mm. So it's taking that approach, and I think that's what really allowed us to be successful as a small team, is we didn't overcommit, both in the amount of work we're doing and the reach that we were taking. You know, we'd we'd take appropriately sized steps. Mike and I had that conversation probably a dozen times, which is how do we get through the weekend? And it would be a different solution each time. And it ultimately led us Mm -hmm. to say like a a more permanent scalable solution where you can have a service that scales to, you know, hundreds of millions of people. But the lesson was each weekend that we extended it, we learned something new that we wouldn't have known had we tried to solve that problem from the very beginning. Hmm. We didn't know what we didn't know. Hmm. But after so many weekends of just, you know, making it a little better, a little better, you know, giving us a little hmm. more room to grow, you had so much more information and you felt so much more confident. Hmm. And yeah. But you d- absolutely did know what your customer wanted. At times, it, it's easier when you have fewer customers relatively. When you're at the size, you know, they are today, 600 million, it's a lot harder. You know, you Mm -hmm. start to look at data more. Mm -hmm. Early on, it goes back to the, you have the queue of features that Mm -hmm. are in the back of your mind. Mm -hmm. And it's all about when's the right time? Mm -hmm. Do we have enough resources to do this? Mm -hmm. Uh, How do we apply this to ourselves? And I think that's a really important question. There's so many ideas out there and there are a few that are very original. And so even with Instagram, you'd look at it and say like, oh, that's like, I've seen this before over in this app or Mm. this other camera tool has this. Right. That took a lot of discipline. Was it a real discipline or was it kind of like, well, we don't have the money or the time to do that? Or was it kind of a hybrid of both of those things? It was a hybrid. Out of the original four of us, the thing that was really special is our ability to communicate with each other. That Mm. surface area of communication was really, really strong. Mm. We shared a common characteristic of understanding. So if you take something in the app like vignette, 
this idea that you have a photo and it's a little darker on the edges. This isn't something that we would, you know, it's not original. You can, it's something that actually comes from the real world, which I'll get to, but we didn't just take the idea from another app. We'd go to the Wikipedia and we'd try to understand how does this occur in the real world? How does it affect things like sunlight? I'm going to get really nerdy on you. You get down <laughs> into the photo and you say like, you know, I want to understand vignette and what it truly is <laughs> and then compare all the different versions of people's reinterpretation. If this is something that happens in the physical world, how can we create that in the digital world? Well, other people have, well, let's try to understand what approaches they took. And this would be painstaking, but it was an obsession because we wanted to understand what we were doing. Mm. And by understanding what we were doing, we can make sure we're implementing the right amount of work to get it done. And so, yeah, this translates to vignette, but it also translates to the server. Like we were going to do something on the back end, the thing that makes Instagram work when you open it, it has to talk to something to get all that information. Mm. We would only put stuff in there and like build with tools that we really understood or rewrote ourselves. So that obsession was shared mm. in saying like, if we're going to do this, we want to do it right. We want it to be the best. Mm. We would compare ourselves. Mm. And it goes back to this theme, which is if you're going to do it, like do it right. Mm -hmm. And my personal goal, and I know it was shared, is just like we need to out-execute. There's an awful lot in what you just said. Mm. You know, a lot of people don't want to stay in sequence. They don't want to go from A to B. They want to go from A to F. Yeah. And when they go to A to F and there's a recession or things go sideways, they go, I don't know, whatever's before A, yeah. <laughs> you know, they've got a business. The discipline to stay in sequence alongside your customer, inside of your means. But what I think is fascinating is the fact that you guys did in an environment where there's an idea a second, there's an app a second. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you guys stayed super focused in the fact that what you wanted to provide was excellence. Our currency was users. And you say users, explain that. What's a user? It's someone who downloads the app and continues to use it. In my terms, it's a customer. Yeah. It's a client. Yeah, absolutely. What made our business different at this stage was that we weren't monetizing. Hmm. We were a venture-backed company based on growth. And that's what I mean by our users or our customers were our currency. If we could get people to download the app and use it and continue to use it, that's critically important. Mm -hmm then that increased the value of our business and the value we provided as a whole, especially with a social product. The more people you have on it, the more value that each person gets from it. How did it grow? How did you get the word out about it? There wasn't a specific strategy. Early on, it was, you know, making sure the right press had the emails of the original 100 people, having a few of those people be members of press. So some of them are bloggers and... Bloggers, photographers, web designers, a lot of Silicon Valley people in that original... But just by releasing it, it would be like picked up in Japan. To this day, I don't even think we know like why it became so popular. But, you know, even in that first day, you know, it just got hot. international installs. It was at a time where there were far, far, far fewer apps. Mm. It was at a time where like mm. phones were getting fast enough. The cameras were getting just good mm. enough. So the timing was good. Looking back, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so when did you know you're onto a winner? When did you start to feel like, oh my gosh, I might not eat ramen noodle again for a while. We were eating ramen noodle for quite a while. <laughs> it's unfortunate, but the truth is I didn't realize it was a success until it was sold. Mm. You know, there's always a doubt. That day when you go and you're, okay, we're going through this acquisition, is a sense of validation, but also this sense of like wonder. Well, let me ask you differently yeah. though. I mean, as regards, when you hit a million people, 
I mean, if you come in that day and you go, 25,000 people just opened up this today and then a million and like, what, what was that feeling like? Honestly, or you d- just have your head down and keep going. You just keep your head down. It's people are fickle for every Instagram. There's a hundred or more companies that would spike and then disappear. disappear. Hmm. So you always doubted. And the best thing for us to do is just to keep our head down. And so it wasn't until the acquisition that there was any sense of like, oh, wow, I think like we did something here. You know, even now I look at it and it's incredibly successful. Facebook, the parent company, has far more people using it than there are people using Instagram. And there are other products out there with more users too. It's how you measure the success. I was always incredibly proud of it. And so the app for me, the product was always successful didn't mean the business was didn't mean i was going to stop eating noodles i was just proud of what i was doing Mm. because i had set out this goal to go to san francisco i wanted to build this app i wanted the app to be solid and i was proud of what i did what did you think was the outcome what was at the end of this rainbow or were you even thinking that far i think the end of the rainbow for me going back to when i was a kid was probably a sense of financial freedom Mm. reason being is i wanted to do something that i was passionate about i had this thought experiment of like what would everybody do if all they did was what they were passionate about Mm. what's funny is i ended up finding passion in what i did (laughs) that ultimately led me there the goal you had hey i'm going to do this i'd love to be financially free at young enough age to enjoy it but in the meantime you were proud of the work you were doing the chemistry you were having with the other guys you knew your role yeah and it was you guys knew you were doing something special but you were keeping your head down and just keep drilling it it was really special i remember we had one investor tell us you know, don't wait for the good times. Hmm. Because right now, these are the good times. Hmm. I reminisce a lot about the early days at Instagram. If it was a means to an end for me, it's like, oh my goodness, that was like quite the ride. And I really enjoyed it. And I was passionate about what I was doing. And so I miss part having that attachment to it. You know, it's grown hmm. into a really, really big successful company now, which I'm incredibly proud of. But Instagram is its own thing. It's like a child. And Mm. it's grown up and, Mm. you know, yeah, I have an attachment to it, but its success is its own. Mm. And, you know, now I'm at a point where I'm going, okay, you know, am I going to have another kid? Yeah, right. (laughs) What's coming up? You know, you said something though, which I thought was great. We were having lunch before we get on here, which was about how you went from like having this kid that you felt you had a real commitment to, to kind of what it became. Yeah. Why you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, in the beginning, you create this thing, and it's so small, but very quickly, like, maybe a great way to address what you're saying was, what did it feel like when you had a million users? Well, that's when this kid starts to walk, and you're Mm. like, oh, wow, like, it can walk (laughs) on its own now. (laughs) And very quickly, as it grows, especially something like Instagram, with different people using it in different ways, but I think it applies to anything that, you know, really gets its legs, is like my role and my responsibility at that point was to do what was best for Instagram, for Mm -hmm. it, to maintain it and make sure that it was well taken care of. But we didn't, and I don't, attribute its growth and its achievements to, you know, the individuals or myself as much as like, no, this thing kind of grew on its own. And, you know, I was the caretaker. I was the one, you know, making sure we added the feature and pushed it out. And Instagram itself is this nebulous of like users mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the reach that it has. And for me, it's just, 
it's a grown-up kid now or an adult that kind of went out and saw a lot of success. How did you balance between, you know, initially it, it needed all your decision-making. Like what you're saying is, you know, you get the thing going. Mm-hmm. It needs all your attention. It needs all your care like a child. Then it's ready to go itself. And now you've got to decide between, do I get behind this yeah. and try and influence it? Or most people try and control things. They mm-hmm. try and control growth. They try and control the outcomes. How did you guys evolve from going to the place of like, let's get behind this because this has its own identity. It's bigger than the four of right. us. Sometimes you would find the direction that needed to be taken. It was something that you maybe didn't feel 100% behind. I'm going to use the product different, you know, Dermot, the way you'll use it. Mm-hmm. And you that's, might want I something. can guarantee you that's the case. <laughs> so <laughs> the most important thing was that Whatever we came out of a meeting and said, this is what we're going to do with this product. Even if we weren't 100% behind the idea, I committed, and I know others did, that we're going to build the best version of whatever it is we're going after. And it'll happen. The product will start to introduce features that aren't your favorite, or like you're going to have to go down a path that isn't the one that you'd want to go down. But the best thing for you to do is to commit to sticking with your guns and saying, you know, we have a bar for excellence here. And Mm -hmm. if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it really well. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to make the best darn version of whatever we decide to do. And video was one of those things. I remember we got the company together and said, okay, it's probably the the last time we built something as all together as one before we branched off and did many things at once. We got the company together to do video. Not everyone was thrilled with the direction we were going. And Mm -hmm. people had a, a bunch of differing opinions. And what I tried to coach and like champion there was... We need to get on the same page and look to a sense of authority, make the decision. Whatever decision is made, we're going to go for that 100%. Mm. We're going to build the best version of that. Mm. Right or wrong? We're just right getting behind that. And if it fails, it fails. If it Because if it was the right decision mm. and you implemented it the wrong way, you didn't apply yourself, it could have failed and you would have blamed it on it being the wrong decision, but it was right all along. Mm. So the only way you can prove your point of that being the wrong decision is to work 100%. Mm. And it turns oh, out that by executing and putting your head down and just committing to that it reminds me of golf like (laughs) if you can commit to that shot even if you miss if you have the fundamentals right Mm -hmm. a bad miss is still going to go toward the pin Mm -hmm. and you'll still have that yardage yep so it doesn't make sense to wind up and try to crack Mm -hmm. it just like keep the fundamentals strong and even if you're unsure about it because at least you'll get closer there and it turns out most of the time having that execution was what made the difference yeah you know what i think is so refreshing about the story is in a world that I can't say I really understand <laughs> but I really understand what you're saying and the fact that hard work keeping it simple staying focused commitment to excellence commitment to serving your customer yeah and not getting distracted by the next idea or what anybody else is doing I mean I can tell you this that I think you know people talk about disruptors today right if you're a disruptor in the industry <laughs> what I see is for most folks me included the biggest disruptor in my world is me the biggest disruptor to Buffini and Company is ourselves. And I think same way as I think Buffini and Company is being successful is because we don't take our eyes off the customer. We know what business we're in. We know why they pay us. And we listen to them. Right. And when they want some more of, of what we have, we, we give it to them. What was it like the day that you figured out, hold on a sec, we're being purchased by Facebook. Yeah. And now you're going to be a blended family. Mm-hmm. What was that like? And you got to sit in meetings with Mark Zuckerberg Mm-hmm. What did you learn from Facebook? What was that interaction like? What did you learn from him? Honestly, it's an amazing company. Mm-hmm. There are so many brilliant people that are working there. And I think the culture in Silicon Valley was fairly divided in that you were either in a startup or you were in a corporate job. And that mm-hmm. 
one was better than the other, depending on what side. Now, we were interesting because we were startup, gone corporate. What I recognized first and foremost was the way that, you know, we were treated when arriving was just like, was brilliant. Like Everyone was incredibly kind. No one was asking anything of us. If anything, they were offering themselves up. So I felt a ton of support. Really quickly got plugged into meetings and talking to other engineers and realized how smart these individuals are how much they could help us and contribute. And likewise, we had a lot of things that, you know, we had learned and that we contributed. A lot of the core values and the concepts of how we ran our company, things that we just did inherently that we had mm-hmm. to look back and distill. Yeah. You know, those were things that they were really interested in too. So you had the principles of your success. They had the knowledge of being brilliant at what they did. So you were able to garnish from each other. And the last thing they wanted to do was to disrupt what yeah. we had going. And they, right. they wanted to just provide more fuel to the fire. In working at that company... All I can say is that there are so many brilliant men and women that are very cunning. <laughs> they're they're funny, they're, you know, talented in more than one way, and it turns into this like community of individuals. That's great. How about Mr. Facebook himself, Mark Zuckerberg? The interactions with Mark were were few. More early on, he was very gracious and very humble. But I got a sense from him that he was very competitive. And I think it's that drive, that determination to be like, we can do better. We can always do better. Is that competitive nature not just with the market, but with himself? Probably. Mm. I mean, you'd have to ask him. Which is what you guys had too. Yeah. So I think it's in looking at competition and understanding how you can use that to motivate yourself, Mm -hmm. to hold yourself accountable don't give yourself excuses. Like if you're out there doing what you're doing, somebody's probably doing something really similar. Mm-hmm. You know, competing is a good thing. It's mm-hmm. what drives innovation. Mm-hmm. And competing is what makes everything better for the customer in the end. So I think from Mark, looking at how competition could help shape a product or drive a company, it was really good. In some cases, it meant we would look at the competition, say, no, this product failed, we're shutting it down. Hmm. And others, we would look at it and say, we need to work harder because we're losing grip or like we need to um, not be so confident because there's all these potential vectors for other things to come and take over what we're doing. I didn't really have that kind of radar back then. And I'm not sure if it needs to be applied everywhere, but I think what I took away from it was just like being competitive can be really good. Not Hmm. just being aware, but like, challenge yourself mm. and say, where do I stand? Mm. And hopefully <laughs> strive to be better. How do you hold yourself accountable? I think a lot of that's internal, right? Mm. So in a business, one of the things that I'll tell other companies is, you know, we talk about the numbers, like, okay, let's look at your numbers. How do you hold yourself accountable? What do you find important? And often, as you know, you probably know, if you want a number, you can go tell the accounting department, hey, go dig through the numbers until you find me the one that looks like this. <laughs> And they'll find it, right? Right. They'll find whatever number you're looking for. What you really need to do is maybe seek third party to hold yourself accountable here. And what I do is I go in and I'll say, you know what? This is what's important for your business is not how many people like will buy this thing, but how many people are coming back? You know, how many people are using it on a daily basis versus a monthly basis? Mm -hmm. And what did that look like a month ago? Mm -hmm. So being able to, you know, hold yourself accountable in the most conservative fashion and saying, you know, I'm not going to look at this as bigger than it is. But what if I put this under a microscope and say like, how small could this be? And what's the worst case scenario? Hmm. Don't go in with expectations and really challenge yourself and be honest with, here's my business. Here's what's critical for its success. 
evaluate those numbers, look at the data. And to me, that's an honesty thing. Mm. You can look at the numbers whatever way. And if you don't truly understand that, like that's where it helps to get a third party to come in mm. and say, actually, here's what's important for your business. Just mm. like you'd hire an accountant yeah. and to go over uh, your taxes, let's mm. say, they'll tell you exactly what you need to be doing. So what I heard you say as well, though, it sounds like with Instagram, failure really wasn't an option because this is the opportunity you guys had and you were going to make the most of it. Yeah. But when you got to Facebook, they had so many projects that were actually it sounds like part of the process was make them fail. I'm only starting to realize in life, I'm going to have to be okay with failure. Yeah. You know, and I'm not really exactly excited about failure being an option. What did you learn about the failure or the success that comes from failure? Yeah. You know, not everything we did was successful by by any means. We had this feature called photo maps that we worked on. And at the time we thought it would be awesome and great. And if you just look at it as a whole, it, it isn't a very critical important part of Instagram you could also say like tagging people in the photos like having a little tag above their name there's all these little things that I would consider failures from a product perspective the first failure is always the hardest because you don't see it you don't recognize it because either everything has been a failure so you can't tell the difference Mm -hmm. or everything's been great and you just assume this is good Mm -hmm. as well so recognizing the failure is really tough and sometimes it just takes the right person to tell you like no this isn't working it goes back to maybe looking at some of the numbers and saying like, okay, how's the engagement here? If we're introducing something new, like are people taking an opportunity to use that? Oh, maybe not. Making sure you're not disproportionately allocating resources towards things like that, I think helps you avoid the pitfalls of failure because I don't think failure needs to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Failure is, is going to be painful no matter what, whether it's for you or for the people that are using it, because maybe you're going to rip something away that, you know, a small minority of people really loved. Mm-hmm. For us, it was like, let's focus on the simple thing. Let's do it simple. Like, is it more simple to take this away and not have it anymore than to have it and have to support it, even if it's unpopular? And it goes back to that principle. It's like, no, we're going to take it away. It removes an extra variable. And it might be the unpopular decision with a small minority. And then we'll deal with that. And we'll try to address what their favorite things were in there and see if that could be applied somewhere else. Hmm. So failures are actually great because if all you're doing is success, then you have no confidence Mm -hmm. in the next thing that you're doing. Does that make sense? Because the failure is what gives you those grooves to understand what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. If I stepped up to a golf ball and hit nothing but straight shots and you asked me, how do you do that? I'd have no idea. Mm -hmm. But it's when I make mistakes that I understand what I'm doing wrong and what those differences is. So I embrace failure and, you know, at Instagram, we were ready to fail. And if you go back to the beginning of the story, it started as bourbon, mm-hmm. which was a pivot, which is mm-hmm. just a Silicon Valley word of saying fill, mm-hmm. that, you know, you learn from that, you extract it, and what was extracted from bourbon, something that no one used, mm-hmm. is Instagram. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating stuff, because I think the whole world you're from feels, for many people, it's from Mars. But it's really <laughs> not. It's really not. I mean, the tools and the applications and the business that sure. you're in. Obviously, it's techie and it's a, it's a different world for most people that they don't understand. Yeah. What would you say that are principles from there that would apply in any business? That's a good question. Like if you're starting a business right now, let's say you're starting a bakery. Yeah. How would you apply it to the bakery? Personally, I, I'd have to say like you have to be passionate about it. <laughs> if you're going to go start something, like be passionate and excited about what it is you're doing. What I learned through my experience at Instagram is like strive to be the best at it. Hmm. I learned how to make coffee, pull espresso while working at Instagram. A couple of the guys were baristas in college. And 
I strive to pull the best espresso shots that I could. <laughs> so if I'm going to go start a coffee shop tomorrow, I'm going to make sure the product that I'm producing is really good. It's not a gimmick. It's not fancy wrapping around something that was just mm-hmm. like, oh, I can mass produce this. I could just put a, a nice coffee holder mm-hmm. on it and then mm-hmm. hand it out. I want the product itself to be really, really good. And mm-hmm. that was Instagram. We wanted the product from every feature in there. It needed to be mm-hmm. fast. We wanted the filters to feel great, the creative tools to feel awesome. Uh, we wanted it to feel fast, all that stuff. So make sure your product is good. It helps if you're passionate about that. Mm-hmm. Doing the simple thing first is one that I'll continue to go back to. Don't overcommit. If you can distill, like, if we did these two or three things, we'd be mm-hmm. providing enough value. Mm. If I'm only going to put two things on the menu, mm. but those are going to be the best things that I can do, that's probably providing enough value to get you started. Mm. You don't need to go out there and go wide. And, you know, that's one of the things I look at restaurants when they have, like, 10-page yeah. menu. <laughs> right. It's like, I'd much rather go to a place with a single sheet where mm. I knew that everything on here is going to be great. Awesome. You know. Do the simple thing first. Do it well. Do it with passion. Yeah. Where do you think the future of social media, where is that whole world going? Oh, my goodness. So, you're asking probably the, the best slash worst person. <laughs> yeah. I help build a really big social network, but I'm not a very big social network guy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, I've kind of stepped away from social media. I like being present in the moment, and I think there's a certain amount of toxicity that I experience. And of course, this is my perspective from not only using social media, but working at Instagram and Facebook. Mm-hmm. So, please take that with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. I think social media provides a lot of potential. And as we've already seen huge benefits. If I think of Instagram and the things that I loved from it, I go back to a story about my sister living in New York, across the continent, the whole country from California. And I had yet to go out and visit her. And I hadn't seen her apartment. I didn't see her on a regular basis. And I remember when she signed up for Instagram, that changed overnight. I would start seeing photos of her, of her apartment Mm -hmm. and soon after I had the opportunity to go out and visit her and it was a different experience because it wasn't discovering all of these things and a bunch of catch up but instead we spent the weekend kind of exploring new things and I felt like you know we picked up right where we left off because we were able to keep in touch Mm -hmm. I think that ability to just communicate and share information is great I think when we get to a point where everything we're consuming is from mass media whether that's a huge celebrity or a brand or a company I get a little worried there. So I wonder if we're going to see ebbs and flows even more of people not wanting to share and trying to keep it private within a small circle, Mm -hmm. creating smaller networks versus what we've seen in the last decade, which is like people creating bigger and bigger networks where it's like, I don't know, do you really have 2,000 friends? (laughs) Right. So more niche yeah, People going know, deeper with each other in smaller categories. It's in, in inhaling and exhaling as like it shrinks and it grows. And, mm-hmm. you know, that could take years and years in between. And if I were to guess, it would be that things become hyper focused and like mm-hmm. more niche. Well, one thing I want to ask you about is we were talking lunch again. You talked to me about one of your pet peeves, which I thought was great, which kind of really aligns with everything that it's kind of to me, it kind of describes your story in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. What's your pet peeve? My pet peeve as of late is when people look at something and say, I wish I would have had that idea. You know, because it's not the idea that is the value. Mm. It's the work involved in making the idea a reality. Mm. And I wish that people would look at these things and understand that it's dedicating yourself to that. Mm-hmm. Not just coming up with it, right. but following through. Mm. That's brilliant. Love it. You know, you're 31 years of age. 
Mm-hmm. You've reached the goal. You set out. You're like, hey, I want to have the ability to kind of be financially independent and retire. I mean, you flew down here in your own airplane. The world is your oyster. It's, you've reached the promised land. What's next for Shane Sweeney? To be truthful, I don't know what's next. The way I think about this is it took me several years. You know, granted, I was young and developing, but for a long time, I've had my sights set on going out there, trying to build a company, do something with my technical mind. And I've been really fortunate to have been a part of Instagram and see that goal reached. I'm giving myself a large amount of time. I need to find where my passions, you know, how they develop and where I get pulled. And for now, uh, making myself available to that is the most important. So I'm not sure what's next, but I'm allowing myself that time that I think is important in between things that I have the ability to give myself, which is good. Well, I love that. And I think you've stayed true to one of your core values, which is be humble and confident. <laughs> so, that. yeah, that's awesome. So you ready for some rapid fire questions? Let's do it. All right. Let me ask you this. What's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? It was from my wife. And it was, you squeeze tighter when things get harder. Mm. And it's contrary to an instinct of fight or flight of, I need to get away from this. If, mm. if something becomes insurmountable, I'm just going to walk away from mm. it. One of my favorite books is The Dip. Mm. And it's a short motivational book that just gets you past that moment of things are so tough and I need to push through. And the truth is, if you can just squeeze tighter and say, I know this is hard right now, whether it's personal or professional, and get through to the other side, chances are you are one of the very few percentage of people that make that cross and you'll be so much better off. That's brilliant. You've got a bright wife. <laughs> so what one gift or talent do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? I wish I was artistic. Hmm. There's so many things that even in you showing me this office that are just brilliant, like the art on the wall. And I just, I, there's not one ounce of, of artistic ability that I have. <laughs> well, don't worry. We don't have it either. We just find people <laughs> who have it like Mr. Lally and we steal their art oh, and stick goodness. it on our walls. Yeah. But if you know the way of expressing yourself. Yeah. I find art to be really beautiful it's just a shame that i when pen comes to paper i can't do anything okay maybe you've already mentioned it but what book has been most instrumental in your life there are definitely quite a few the dip is one that i've read almost every year uh, since i first got it there are a couple that i'll mention because it's not fair to say that there's just one but uh one book is called how to want what you have Hmm. just the title alone Mm -hmm. i think is really powerful Mm. And it can improve your well-being <laughs> again in your life. It's such a powerful message, how to want what you have. I think I'll go on a different side here, but the Isaac Asimov Foundation series hmm. is a, a series of books that it's fiction and it takes you kind of out of this, but it's, it's amazing to think that these were written so many years ago and we're talking, I believe, 50s up into the 80s. It's a long series. But it gives you a different perspective on mankind and potentially where we're going in the future. Hmm. And there's so many accuracies in these general observations that Isaac Asimov made in that series. And it's definitely well worth it. It makes you think about the world a little differently. And what's it called? Isaac Asimov's Foundation Series. All right. I'll have to look that up. Okay. What's your favorite song? Oh, my goodness. This is probably going to be more embarrassing than anything. <laughs> my favorite song would be a Taylor Swift song. Nice. That my wife and I share, uh, which is uh, Everything Has Changed. Oh, I'll yeah. check that out. I love it. So what movie do you watch over and over? Dumb and Dumber. I love it. Awesome. Every year. I knew there was a reason we yeah. connected. I love it. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, Shane, thanks so much for sharing. Thanks so much for taking the time. 
you got a great story and congratulations and I know that there's a lot of great principles in here and it's really refreshing to know that you have built such a great story and a great business and I know that a lot of people will benefit from hearing those principles so thanks so for taking the time your oh. gentleman thank you Dermot and everybody else at Buffini it's been great awesome thanks a million well I hope you enjoyed today's show don't forget to head over and leave a review on iTunes we're also on Android so download your favorite podcast app from Google Play and tune in for free So as I finish here today, I'll leave you with a little Irish blessing that my grandfather always said. May the roads rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. <laughs>